Section 28 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10, Section 28. Selected Works by Francis Marion Crawford. Francis Marion Crawford, born 1854. Andrew Lang has justly called Crawford the most versatile and various of modern novelists. Since the appearance of Mr. Isaacs in 1882, he has written nearly 30 novels, distinguished for their variety of subject and treatment. He belongs to the race of cosmopolitan Americans, men who, having no mental boundaries except for the literary inheritance, the romantic traditions and customs of all nationalities. This natural taste, quickened by European education and extensive travel, has made him swift to comprehend all lands and races with their types of character developed by social or national conditions. His adaptability of mind is partially explained by him in the three fates, supposed to be autobiographic, which describes the career of an author. The young man's true talent, he says, lay in his ready power of assimilating unfamiliar knowledge by a process of intuition, which escapes methodical learners. Mr. Crawford was born in Bogni di Lucia, Italy, August 2, 1854. He is of mingled ancestry. His father, Thomas Crawford, the sculptor, was a native of Ireland, and his mother was an American. He spent his early childhood in New York. After studying at Cambridge, Heidelberg, Karlsruhe, and Rome, he went to India in 1879 and edited the Indian Herald at Allahabad. There he became acquainted with a Persian jewel merchant who suggested the mysterious personality of Mr. Isaacs. Returning to America in 1881, he wrote the romance which bears the title. This fantastic creation with its oriental flavor, its hints of Anglo-India, the introduction of Ram Lal, the shadowy adept of occultism, and the striking figure of Mr. Isaacs with his graceful languor, Iranian features, blazing eyes, and luxurious tastes, bestowed immediate celebrity upon its author. This was followed by Dr. Claudius, which, although less romantic, showed increase in constructive skill. This became more marked in To Leeward, the unlovely and tragic story of a wife's infidelity and of society in Rome. The tale of a peasant boy who became a famous tenor is the theme of a Roman singer issued in 1884, and in the same year he published An American Politician, in which are discussed the party spirit and corruption of American politics. In 1885, Zoroaster was issued, a story of ancient Persia, introducing the court of King Darius and the aged prophet Daniel. After a tale of a lonely parish, a sketch of rural life in England, one of his most popular books appeared, Sarinsonesca, which, with St. Ilario, and Don Orsino forms a trilogy describing the history of an Italian noble family of that day, and indeed forms a complete study of Rome from 1865 to 1887. Cardinal Antonelli is brought upon the scene, and the bewildered and stormy period of the last struggles of the papacy for temporal power are painted with vigorous skill and rapid generalization, until at last, as he says in Don Orsino, Old Rome is dead, never to be old Rome again. The last breath has been breathed. The aged eyes are closed forever. Corruption has done its work, 
and the grand skeleton lies bleaching upon seven hills half covered with the piecemeal stucco of a modern architectural body marzio's crucifix eighteen eighty seven is the tale of an atheistic artisan who carves in silver this possesses a psychological interest and that element deepens in the witch of prague eighteen ninety two a bold and thrilling tale of hypnotism paul patoff eighteen eighty seven relates personal experiences of a visit to turkey with the immortals eighteen eighty eight is an attempt to reanimate dead celebrities griefenstein is a tragedy which takes place in the black forest and tells the fortunes of two noble german families it is valued for its accurate depiction of the coarse studenten with their extraordinary ideals of romance and honor tempered with foaming beer and saber cuts the cigarette maker's romance is a pathetic story of the madness of count scariatine Khaled, a fanciful tale of a genie who has promised a soul if he can gain a woman's love from romance and fancy mr crawford turns to new york life in the three fates and in Catherine lauderdale with its sequel the ralstons marion darsh is also an american story adam johnston's son depends upon a simple tale of love for its interest in casa braccio the children of the king and his last book taquisara eighteen ninety six the author returns again to his familiar milieu italy this is a list of extraordinary variety and voluminousness since eighteen eighty four mr crawford has lived near sorrento here and in his yacht he writes his novels although he has devoted much time to philology he never intrudes dialect in his books which are written with the idea of pleasing instead of instructing his enormous audience his works have been translated into various languages he has received many honors for his literary achievements he considers pietro Ghisleri the most realistic of his books in eighteen ninety three mr crawford published a small essay entitled the novel what it is in this he defines the novel as an intellectual artistic luxury a definition which can be made to include he says a great deal but which is in reality a closer one than appears at first sight it covers the three principal essentials of the novel as it should be of a story or romance which in itself and in the manner of telling it shall appeal to the intellect shall satisfy the requirements of art and shall be a luxury and that it can be of no use to a man when he is at work but may conduce to a peace of mind and delectation during his hours of idleness the ghost in the birth from the upper birth in the autonym library copyrighted by g p putnam sons we played whist in the evening and i went to bed late i will confess now that i felt a disagreeable sensation when i entered my stateroom i could not help thinking of the tall man i had seen on the previous night who was now dead drowned tossing about in the long swell two or three hundred miles astern his face rose very distinctly before me as i undressed and i even went so far as to draw back the curtains of the upper berth as though to persuade myself that he was actually gone i also bolted the door of the stateroom suddenly i became aware that the porthole was open and fastened back this was more than i could stand i hastily threw on my dressing gown and went in search of robert the steward of my passage i was very angry i remember and when i found him i dragged him roughly to the door of one hundred and five and pushed him towards the open porthole what the deuce do you mean you scoundrel by leaving that port open every night don't you know it is against the regulations don't you know that if the ship heeled and the water began to come in ten men could not shut it i will report you to the captain you blackguard for endangering the ship 
I was exceedingly wroth. The man trembled and turned pale, and then began to shut the round glass plate with the heavy brass fittings. "'Why don't you answer me?' I said roughly. "'If you please, sir,' faltered Robert, "'there's nobody on board as can keep this ere port shut at night. "'You can try it yourself, sir. "'I ain't a-going to stop any longer on board of this vessel, sir. "'I ain't indeed. "'But if I was you, sir, "'I'd just clear out and go and sleep with the surgeon or something.' "'I would. "'Look here, sir. "'Is that fastened what you may call securely or not, sir? "'Try it, sir. "'See if we will move a hinch.' "'I tried the port and found it perfectly tight.' "'Well, sir,' continued Robert triumphantly, "'I wager my reputation as an A-1 steward, "'but in arf an hour it will be open again, fastened back too, sir. "'That's the awful thing. Fastened back.' "'I examined the great screw and the loop nut that ran on it. "'If I find it open in the night, Robert, I will give you a sovereign. "'It is not possible. You may go.' "'Sovereign, did you say, sir? Very good, sir. Thank you, sir. Good night, sir. "'Pleasant repose, sir, and all manner of enchanting dreams, sir.' Robert scuttled away, delighted at being released. Of course I thought he was trying to account for his negligence by a silly story intended to frighten me, and I disbelieved him. The consequence was that he got his sovereign, and I spent a very peculiarly unpleasant night. I went to bed, and five minutes after I had rolled myself up in my blankets, the inexorable Robert extinguished the light that burned steadily behind the ground-glass pane near the door. I lay quite still in the dark, trying to go to sleep, but I soon found that impossible. It had been some satisfaction to be angry with the steward, and the diversion had banished that unpleasant sensation I had at first experienced when I thought of the drowned man, who had been my chum. But I was no longer sleepy, and I lay awake for some time, occasionally glancing at the porthole, which I could just see from where I lay, and which in the darkness looked like a faintly luminous soup-plate suspended in blackness. I believe I must have lain there for an hour." and, as I remember, I was just dozing into sleep when I was roused by a draft of cold air, and by distinctly feeling the spray of the sea blown upon my face. I started to my feet, and not having allowed in the dark for the motion of the ship, I was instantly thrown violently across the stateroom upon the couch which was placed beneath the porthole. I recovered myself immediately, however, and climbed upon my knees. The porthole was again wide open, and fastened back. Now these things are facts. I was wide awake when I got up, and I should certainly have been waked by the fall had I still been dozing. Moreover, I bruised my elbows and knees badly, and the bruises were there on the following morning to testify to the fact, if I myself had doubted it. The porthole was wide open and fastened back, a thing so unaccountable that I remember very well feeling astonishment rather than fear when I discovered it. I at once closed the plate again, and screwed down the loop nut with all my strength. It was very dark in the stateroom. I reflected that the port had certainly been opened within an hour, after Robert had at first shut it in my presence, and I determined to watch it and see whether it would open again. Those brass fittings are very heavy, and by no means easy to move. I could not believe that the clump had been turned by the shaking of the screw. I stood peering out through the thick glass at the alternate white and gray streaks of the sea that formed beneath the ship's side. I must have remained there a quarter of an hour. Suddenly, as I stood, I distinctly heard something moving behind me in one of the berths. And a moment afterwards, just as I turned, instinctively to look, though I could, of course, see nothing in the darkness, I heard a very faint groan. I sprang across the stateroom and tore the curtains of the upper berth aside, 
thrusting in my hands to discover if there were anyone there. There was someone. I remember that the sensation, as I put my hands forward, was as though I were plunging them into the air of a damp cellar, and from behind the curtain came a gust of wind that smelled horribly of stagnant seawater. I laid hold of something that had the shape of a man's arm, but was smooth and wet and icy cold. But suddenly as I pulled, the creature sprang violently forward against me, a clammy, oozy mass, as it seemed to me, heavy and wet, yet endowed with a sort of supernatural strength. I reeled across the stateroom, and, in an instant, the door opened and the thing rushed out. I had not had time to be frightened, and quickly recovering myself, I sprang through the door and gave chase at the top of my speed. But I was too late. Ten yards before me I could see, I am sure I saw it, a dark shadow moving in the dimly lighted passage, quickly as the shadow of a fast horse thrown before a dog-cart by the lamp of a dark light. But in a moment it had disappeared, and I found myself holding on to the polished rail that ran along the bulkhead, where the passage turned towards the companion. My hair stood on end, and the cold perspiration rolled down my face. I am not ashamed of it in the least. I was very badly frightened. Still I doubted my senses and pulled myself together. It was absurd, I thought. The Welsh rarebit I had eaten had disagreed with me. I had been in a nightmare. I made my way back to my stateroom and entered it with an effort. The whole place smelled of stagnant seawater, as it had when I had waked on the previous evening. It required my utmost strength to go in and grope among my things for a box of wax lights. As I lighted a railway reading lantern, which I always carry in case I want to read after the lamps are out, I perceived that the porthole was again open, and a sort of creeping horror began to take possession of me which I never felt before, nor wished to feel again. But I got a light and proceeded to examine the upper berth, expecting to find it drenched with seawater. But I was disappointed. The bed had been slept in, and the smell of the sea was strong, but the bedding was as dry as a bone. I fancied that Robert had not had the courage to make the bed after the accident of the previous night. It had all been a hideous dream. I drew the curtains back as far as I could and examined the place very carefully. It was perfectly dry, but the porthole was open again. With a sort of dull bewilderment of horror I closed it and screwed it down, and thrusting my heavy stick through the brass loop, wrenched it with all my might till the thick metal began to bend under the pressure. Then I hooked my reading lantern into the red velvet at the head of the couch and sat down to recover my senses if I could. I sat there all night, unable to think of rest, hardly able to think at all. But the porthole remained closed, and I did not believe it would now open again without the application of a considerable force. The morning dawned at last, and I dressed myself slowly, thinking over all that had happened in the night. It was a beautiful day, and I went on deck, glad to get out in the early pure sunshine and to smell the breeze from the blue water, so different from the noisome stagnant odor from my stateroom. Instinctively I turned aft toward the surgeon's cabin. There he stood with a pipe in his mouth, taking his morning airing precisely as on the preceding day. Good morning, said he quietly, but looking at me with evident curiosity. Doctor, you are quite right, said I. There is something wrong about that place. "'I thought you would change your mind,' he answered rather triumphantly. "'You have had a bad night, eh? "'Shall I make you a pick-me-up? "'I have a capital recipe.' "'No, thanks,' I cried. "'But I would like to tell you what happened.' 
I then tried to explain as clearly as possible precisely what had occurred, not omitting to state that I had been scared, as I had never been scared in my whole life before. I dwelt particularly on the phenomenon of the porthole, which was a fact to which I could testify, even if the rest had been an illusion. I had closed it twice in the night, and the second time I had actually bent the brass in wrenching it with my stick. I believe I insisted a good deal on this point. "'You seem to think I am likely to doubt the story,' said the doctor, smiling at the detailed account of the state of the porthole. "'I do not doubt it in the least. I renew my invitation to you. Bring your traps here and take half my cabin.' "'Come and take half of mine for one night,' I said. "'Help me get to the bottom of this thing.' "'You will get to the bottom of something else if you try,' answered the doctor. "'What?' I asked. "'The bottom of the sea. I am going to leave the ship. It is not canny.' "'Then you will not help me to find out?' "'Not I,' said the doctor quickly. "'It is my business to keep my wits about me, not go fiddling about with ghosts and things.' "'Do you really believe it is a ghost?' I inquired, rather contemptuously. But as I spoke, I remembered very well the horrible sensation of the supernatural, which had got possession of me during the night. The doctor turned sharply on me. "'Have you any reasonable explanation of these things to offer?' he asked. "'No, you have not.' "'Well, you say you will find an explanation. I say that you won't, sir, simply because there is not any.' "'But, my dear sir,' I retorted, "'do you, a man of science, mean to tell me that such things cannot be explained?' "'I do,' he answered stoutly. "'And if they could?' I would not be concerned in the explanation. I did not care to spend another night alone in the stateroom, and yet I was obstinately determined to get at the root of the disturbances. I do not believe there are many men who would have slept there alone after passing two such nights, but I made up my mind to try it, if I could not get anyone to share a watch with me. The doctor was evidently not inclined for such an experiment. He said he was a surgeon, and that, in case any accident occurred on board, he must always be in readiness. He could not afford to have his nerves unsettled. Perhaps he was quite right. But I am inclined to think that his precaution was prompted by his inclination. On inquiry, he informed me that there was no one on board who would be likely to join me in my investigations, and after a little more conversation, I left him. A little later, I met the captain and told him my story. I said that if no one would spend the night with me, I would ask leave to have the light burning all night and would try it alone. Look here, said he. I will tell you what I will do. I will share your watch myself, and we will see what happens. It is my belief that we can find out between us. There may be some fellow skulking on board who steals a passage by frightening the passengers. It is just possible that there may be something queer in the carpentering of that berth. I suggested taking the ship's carpenter below and examining the place, but I was overjoyed at the captain's offer to spend the night with me. He accordingly sent for the workman and ordered him to do anything I required. We went below at once. I had all the bedding cleared out of the upper berth, and we examined the place thoroughly to see if there was a board loose anywhere, or a panel which could be opened or pushed aside. We tried the planks everywhere, tapped the flooring, unscrewed the fittings of the lower berth, and took it to pieces. In short, there was not a square inch of that stateroom which was not searched and tested. Everything was in perfect order, and we put everything back in its place. As we were finishing our work, Robert came to the door and looked in. "'Well, sir,' "'Finding things, sir?' he asked, with a ghastly grin. "'You are right about the porthole, Robert,' I said, and I gave him the promised sovereign. The carpenter did his work silently and skillfully, following my directions. When he had done, he spoke. "'I'm a plain man, sir,' he said. "'But it's my belief you had better just turn out your things, 
and let me run half a dozen four-inch screws to the door of this cabin. There's no good never came of this cabin yet, sir, and that's all about it. There's been four lives lost out here to my own remembrance, and that in four trips. Better give it up, sir. Better give it up. I will try it for one night more, I said. Better give it up, sir. Better give it up. It's a precious bad job, repeated the workman, putting his tools in his bag and leaving the cabin. But my spirits had risen considerably at the prospect of having the captain's company, and I made up my mind not to be prevented from going to the end of the strange business. I abstained from Welsh rarebits and grog that evening. It did not even join in the customary game of whist. I wanted to be quite sure of my nerves, and my vanity made me anxious to make a good figure in the captain's eyes. A Thwarted Plan from Marzio's Crucifix, copyrighted 1887 by F. Marion Crawford, and reproduced by permission of the Macmillan Company, Publishers. Marzio entered the inner studio when Gian Battista was gone, leaving a boy who was learning to cut little files, the preliminary to the chiseler's profession, in charge of the outer workshop. The artist shut himself in and bolted the door, glad to be alone with the prospect of not being disturbed during the whole afternoon. He seemed not to hesitate about the work he intended to do, for he immediately took in hand the crucifix, laid it upon the table, and began to study it, using a lens from time to time as he scrutinized each detail. His rough hair fell forward over his forehead, and his shoulders rounded themselves till they looked almost deformed. He had suffered very strong emotions during the last twenty-four hours, enough to have destroyed the steadiness of an ordinary man's hand. But with Marzio, manual skill was the first habit of nature, and it would have been hard to find a mental impression which could shake his physical nerves. His mind, however, worked rapidly and almost fiercely, while his eyes searched the minute lines of the work he was examining. Uppermost in his thoughts was a confused sense of humiliation and of exasperation against his brother. The anger he felt had nearly been expressed in a murderous deed not more than two or three hours earlier and the wish to strike was still present in his mind. He twisted his lips into an ugly smile as he recalled the scene in every detail. But the determination was different from the reality, and more in accordance with his feelings. He realized again that moment during which he had held the sharp instrument over his brother's head, and the thought which had then passed so rapidly through his brain recurred again with increased clearness. He remembered that beneath the iron-bound box in the corner there was a trap-door which descended to the unused cellar, for his workshop had, in former times, been a wine-shop, and he had hired the cellar with it. One sharp blow would have done the business. A few quick movements, and Paolo's body would have been thrown down the dark steps beneath. The trap closed again, the safe replaced in its position. It was eleven o'clock, then, or thereabouts. He would have sent the workmen to their dinner, and would have returned to the inner studio. They would have supposed afterwards that Don Paolo had left the place with him. He would have gone home and would have said that Paolo had left him. Or no, he would have said that Paolo had not been there. For some one might see him leave the workshop alone. In the night he would have returned, his family thinking he had gone to meet his friends, as he often did. When the streets were quiet, he would have carried the body away upon the handcart that stood in the entry of the outer room. It was not far, scarcely three hundred yards, allowing for the turnings, to the place where the Via Montella ends in a mud bank by the dark river. A deserted neighborhood, too. A turn to the left, the low trees, the, the Piazza de Branca, the dark, short, straight street to the water, 
at one o'clock after midnight who was stirring. It would all have been so simple, so terribly effectual. And then there would have been no more Paolo, no more domestic annoyances, no more the priest's smooth-faced disappropriation and perpetual opposition in the house. He would have soon brought Maria Luisa and Lucia to reason. What could they do without the support of Paolo? They were only women, after all. As for Gian Battista, if once the poisonous influence of Paolo were removed, and how surely removed, Marzio's lips twisted as though he was tasting the sourness of failure like an acid fruit, if once the priests were gone, Gian Battista would come back to his old ways, to his scorn of priests in general, of churches, of oppression, of everything that Marzio hated. He might marry Lucia then and be welcome. After all, he was a finer fellow for the pretty girl than Gasparo Carzonici, with his claw fingers and his vinegar salad. That was only a farce, that proposal about the lawyer. The real thing was to get rid of Paolo. There could be no healthy liberty of thought in the house. While this fellow was sneaking in and out at all hours, tumble Paolo into a quiet grave, into the river with a sack full of old castings at his neck, there would be peace then, and freedom. Marzio ground his teeth as he thought how nearly he had done the thing, and how miserably he had failed. It had been the inspiration of the moment, and the details had appeared clear once to his mind. Going over them, he found that he had not been mistaken. If Paolo came again, and he had the chance, he would do it. It was perhaps all the better that he had found time to weigh the matter. But would Paolo come again? Would he ever trust himself alone in the workshop? Had he guessed, when he turned so suddenly and saw the weapon in the air, that the blow was on the very point of descending? Or had he been deceived by the clumsy excuse Marzio had made about the sun shining in his eyes? He had remained calm, or Marzio tried to think so. But the artist himself had been so much moved during the minutes that followed that he could hardly feel sure of Paolo's behavior. It was a chilling thought, that Paolo might have understood and might have gone away feeling that his life had been saved almost by a miracle. He would not come back, the cunning priest in that case. He would not risk his precious skin in such company. It was not to be expected. A priest was only human, after all, like any other man. Marzio cursed his ill luck again as he bent over his work. What a moment this would be if Paolo were to take it into his head to make another visit. Even the men were gone. He would send the one boy who remained to the church where Gian Battista was working with a message. They would be alone then, he and Paolo. The priest might scream and call for help. The thick walls would not let any sound through them. It would be even better then in the morning, when he had lost his opportunity by a moment of the twinkling of an eye. They say hell is paid with good intentions, or lost opportunities, muttered Marzio. I will send Paolo with the next opportunity to help in the paving. <laughs> he laughed softly at his grim joke, and bent lower over the crucifix. By this time he had determined what to do, for his reflections had not interfered with his occupation. Removing two tiny silver screws, which fitted with the utmost exactness in the threads, he loosened the figure from the cross, removed the latter to a shelf on the wall, and returning laid the statue on a soft leathern pad, surrounding it with sandbags till it was propped securely in the position he required. Then he took a very small chisel, adjusted it with the greatest care, and tapped upon it with the round wooden handle of his little hammer. At each touch he examined the surface with his lens to assure himself that he was making the improvement he contemplated. It was very delicate work, and as he did it he felt a certain pride in the reflection. 
that he could not have detected the place where improvement was possible when he had worked upon the place ten years ago. He found it now in the infinitesimal touches upon the expression of the face, in the minute increase in the depressions and accentuated lines in the anatomy of the figure. As he went over each portion, he became more and more certain that though he could not at present do better in the way of idea and general execution, he had nevertheless gained in subtle knowledge of effects and in skill of handling the chisel upon very delicate points. The certainty gave him the real satisfaction of legitimate pride. He knew that he had reached the zenith of his capacities. His old wish to keep the crucifix for himself began to return. If he disposed of Paolo, he might keep his work. Only Paolo had seen it. The absurd want of logic in the conclusion did not strike him. He had not pledged himself to his brother to give this particular crucifix to the cardinal, and if he had, he could easily have found a reason for keeping it back. But he was too much accustomed to think that Paolo was always in the way of his wishes, to look at so simple a matter in such a simple light. It is strange, he said to himself. The smallest things seemed to point to it, if he only would come. Again his mind returned to the contemplation of the deed, and again he reviewed all the circumstances necessary for its safe execution. What an inspiration, he thought, and what a pity it had not found shape in fact at the very moment it had presented itself. He considered why he had never thought of it before, in all the years, as a means of freeing himself effectually from the despotism he detested. It was a despotism, he reflected, and no other word expressed it. He recalled many scenes in his home, in which Paolo had interfered. He remembered how one Sunday in the afternoon they had all been together before going to walk in the Corso, and how he had undertaken to demonstrate to Maria Luisa and Lucia the folly of wasting time in going to church on Sundays. He had argued gently and reasonably, he thought, but suddenly Paolo had interrupted him, saying that he would not allow Marzio to compare a church to a circus, nor priests to mountebanks and tightrope dancers. Why not? Then the woman had begun to scream and cry and to talk of his blasphemous language until he could not hear himself speak. It was Paolo's fault. If Paolo had not been there, the women would have listened patiently enough, and would doubtless have reaped some good from his reasonable discourse. On another occasion, Marzio had declared that Lucia should never be taught anything about Christianity, that the definition of God was reason, that Garibaldi had baptized one child in the name of reason, and that he, Marzio, could baptize another quite as effectually. Paolo had interfered, and Maria Luisa had screamed. The contest had lasted nearly a month, at the end of which time Marzio had been obliged to abandon the uneven contest, vowing vengeance in some shape for the future. Many and many such scenes rose to his memory, and in every one Paolo was the opposer, the enemy of his peace, the champion of all that he hated and despised. In great things and small, his brother had been his antagonist from his early manhood through eighteen years of married life to the present day, and yet without Paolo he could hardly have hoped to find himself in his present state of fortune. This is one of the chief sources of his humiliation in his own eyes. With such a character as his, it is eminently true that it is harder to forgive a benefit than an injury. He might have felt less bitterly against his brother if he had not received at his hands the orders and commissions which had turned into solid money in the bank. It was hard to face Paolo, knowing that he owed two-thirds of his fortune to such a source. If he could get rid of the priest, he would be relieved at once from the burden of this annoyance, of this financial subjugation, as well of all that embittered his life. 
He pictured to himself his wife and daughter listening respectfully to his harangues and beginning to practice his principles. Gian Battista, an eloquent member of the society in the inner room of the old inn, reformed, purged from the sneaking fondness for Paolo, since Paolo would not be in the world any longer, and ultimately married to Lucia, the father of children who should all be baptized in the name of reason, and the worthy successor of himself, Marzio Pandolfi. Scrutinizing the statue under his lens, he detected a slight imperfection in the place where one of the sharp thorns touched the silver forehead of the beautiful tortured head. He looked about for a tool fine enough for the work, and none suited his wants. He took up the long, fine-pointed punch he had thrown back upon the table after the scene in the morning. It was too long and over-sharp, but by turning it sideways it would do the work under his dexterous fingers. Strange, he muttered as he tapped upon the tool. It is like a consecration. When he made the stroke, he dropped the instrument into the pocket of his blouse, as though fearing to lose it. He had no occasion to use it again, though he went on with his work during several hours. The thought which had passed through his brain recurred, and did not diminish in clearness. On the contrary, it was as though the passing impulse of the morning had grown during these short hours into a settled and unchangeable resolution. Once he rose from his stool, and going to the corner, dragged away the iron-bound safe from its place. A rusty ring lay flat in a little hollow in the surface of the trap-door. Marzio bent over it with a pale face and gleaming eyes. It seemed to him as though, if he looked round, he could see Paolo's body lying on the floor, ready to be dropped into the space below. He raised the wood and set the trap back against the wall, peering down into the black depths. A damp smell came up to his nostrils from the moist staircase. He struck a match and held it into the opening, to see in what direction the stairs led down. Something moved behind him and made a little noise. With a short cry of horror, Marzio sprang back from the opening and looked round. It was as though the body of the murdered man had stirred upon the floor. His overstrained imagination terrified him, and his eyes started from his head. He examined the bench, and saw the cause of the sound in a moment. The silver Christ, unsteadily propped in the position in which he had just placed it, had fallen upon one side of the pad by its own weight. Marzio's heart still beat desperately as he went back to the hole and carefully reclosed the trap-door, dragging the heavy safe to its position over the ring. Trembling violently, he sat down upon his stool and wiped the cold perspiration from his forehead. Then, as he laid the figure upon the cushion, he glanced uneasily behind him and at the corner. With an anxious heart he left the house and crossed the street to the workshop, where the men were already waiting for the carts which were to convey the heavy grating to its destination. The pieces were standing against the walls wrapped in tow and brown paper, and immense parcels lay tied up upon the benches. It was a great piece of work of the decorative kind, but of the sort for which Mario cared little. Great brass castings were chiseled and finished according to his designs without his touching them with his hands. Huge twining arabesques, of solid metal were prepared in pieces and fitted together with screws that ran easily in the thread, and then were taken apart again. It was slow and troublesome work, and Marzio cared little for it, though his artistic instinct restrained him from allowing it to leave the workshop until it had been perfected to the highest degree. At present the artist stood in the outer room among his wrapped pieces, his pipe in his mouth and his hands in his pockets. A moment after Gian Battista had entered, two carts rolled up to the door and the loading began. "'Take the drills and some screws to spare,' said Marzio, looking into the bag of tools the foreman had prepared. "'One could never tell in these monstrous things.' 
It will be the first time if we have to drill a new hole after you have fitted a piece of work, Maestro Marzio, answered the foreman, who had an unlimited admiration for his master's genius and foresight. Never mind, do as I tell you. We may all make mistakes in this world, returned the artist, giving utterance to a moral sentiment which did not influence him beyond the precincts of the workshop. The workman obeyed, and added the requisite instruments to the furnishing of his leather bag. And be careful, Tista, added Marzio, turning to his apprentice. Look to the sockets in the marble when you place the large pieces. Measure them with your compass, you know. If they are too loose, you have the thin plates of brass to pack them. If they are tight, file away, but finish and smooth it well. Don't leave anything rough. Gian Battista nodded as he lent a helping hand to the workmen who were carrying the heavy pieces to the carts. Will you come to the church before night, he asked. Perhaps. I cannot tell. I am very busy. In ten minutes the pieces were all piled upon the two vehicles, and Gian Battista strode away on foot with the workmen. He had not thought of changing his dress, and had merely thrown an old overcoat over his grey woolen blouse. For the time he was an artisan at work. When working hours were over, and on Sundays, he loved to put on the stiff high collar and the checked clothes, which suggested the garments of the English tourist. He was then a different person, and in accordance with the change, he would smoke a cigarette and pull his cuffs over his hands like a real gentleman, adjusting the angle of his hat from time to time and glancing at his reflection in the shop windows as he passed along. But work was work. It was a pity to spoil good clothes with handling tools and castings and jostling against the men, and moreover the change affected his nature. He could not handle a hammer or a chisel when he felt like a real gentleman, and when he felt like an artisan he must enjoy the liberty of being able to tuck up his sleeves and work with a will. At the present moment, too, he was proud of being in sole charge of the work, and he could not help thinking what a fine thing it would be to be married to Lucia and to be the master of the workshop. With the sanguine enthusiasm of a very young man who loves his occupation, he put his whole soul into what he was to do. Assured that every skillful stroke of the hammer, every difficulty overcome, brought him nearer to the woman he loved. End of section 28 Recording by Chris Pyle